0: Hello and welcome to Blood and Turf. I'm E. And I'm M. This episode is the second of our two-parter about institutions. Uh, In part one, we covered the media, civic activism, and the government. In part two, we're now going to delve deeper into the realms of academia and the wider strategic scope. Even though neither of us are university educated, which is ironic considering that... Oh no, fuck it. I was trying to do a cool intro to academia, but I fucked it up. Ignore me um it's ironic
1: ironic because we're both middle class bastards
0: yeah (laughs) oh no that's it i was gonna say it was to do with actually the center of gravity academia is specifically interesting because it isn't it is is a big institution Uh, particularly in regards to the government because the government again a bit of uk history Blair did a sweeping programme of educational reforms, which essentially, amongst other things, gave an illusion of this meritoc- meritocracy to vast swathes of the population, which is why he was super um, popular, ev- even among people who usually wouldn't vote Labour. Uh, but really, ended up contributing to like the marketisation of universities now, where they're all of like um, our old kind of practical trade colleges were turned into universities, and university fees started coming in, and university became this thing that every everyone did rather than a few people did universities now are experiencing this kind of like weird crisis uh, where they used to be centers of hallowed elites and that is slightly changing in in various ways and so this this kind of like weird class of academics have invariably a lot of them turned out to be turfs because a lot of people at universities in, in 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 elite positions can be reactionary because again they're they're an institution there are several including obviously everyone knows jermaine greer famously like janice raymond who wrote the transsexual empire and people like sheila jeffries and selena todd and sylvia federici who is a, a marxist uh, feminist academic and kathleen stock who most people know just as being a turf now they th- there's a lot of them to the point where like Seven universities in London alone were named on a list of academics who signed like this uh, shit turf letter there's been several there's been several uh, open turf letters about some issue or other as M pointed out these specific issues, but this one was a bunch of academics signed seven universities alone in that were from London. And the majority of those were from UCL, which is a classically extremely elite, extremely, like, prestigious university, and also quite famously has a lot of reactionary elements within it, such as, like, um, there's some UCL academics who are, like, uh, eugenics apologists uh, and things like that. Yeah. And, and, and KCL was obviously on the list and KCL is famously has a war studies department or you've got all of these people who may or may not have prestige kind of using transphobia as a way to retain that in in, in some form because if you've we've spoken about this before in previous episodes but it's this kind of liberal thing of thinking that you're right and being challenged by the horrible trans people but also on a more cynical uh, manner interacts with the corridors of power in big gov because governments do actually interact with academics a lot in terms of uh, you know brexit famously was had the issue of like experts being bandied about governments do consult with universities on health policy on education on lots of things and on top of that as well, going back to more existential worries that the TERFs have, I think as I was talking about earlier in terms of the GRA reform, there is genuine anxiety around feminism is broadly a good thing and like unfortunately women do often just have a shitter time of it, especially in the in, in work. It seems like a lot of a lot of Turf academics are kind of going towards this manufacturing outrage and kind of um, leveraging the institution for their benefit, partially in relation to an anxiety like around that, which is why universities have really bought into this whole like free speech grift, essentially.
1: It's notable that like the class divide in British universities has gone through some really weird transitions over the last few decades. Back in like the 1950s, like having access to to a university was like an up, a relatively upper class thing. And as we progressed through the 20th century, it became more and more accessible to like the middle and working classes. And like the crescendo of that is the change in university fees, because you know the the, the ruling class basically realized that there were so many people getting funneled through. The, the, the like the, the university system because of the way that the British economy had changed, that it meant that it was the ultimate way to do wealth redistribution uh, except like trickle up. it was trickle up economics like that was the reason for tuition fees. so you do you do have this situation where there's no longer there's no longer like a trade school academy divide because trade schools are no longer a significant component of British educational infrastructure in a way that they used to be they're kind of coming back, like there's a lot of rhetoric in British politics about, and it's kind of connected to like British, like British jobs to British workers type stuff, they do occasionally try to push up trade schools and push up higher-end manual skills and that kind of stuff, but nevertheless the number of people across classes who have a university degree of some sort has, broadly speaking, over the last kind of half century changed dramatically and that has led to changes in the academic environment and that has led to changes in academic culture because this is also coincided with all of the weird political and social movements of the 20th and 21st centuries and I feel like that is very much the backdrop which informs the place that uh, turf academia sits in. That they are sitting in a reactionary place, and they're sitting in a reactionary place where they have to react against new and challenging forms of feminism and new and challenging people who are often quite a bit younger than them and in a more precarious economic position.
0: Yes, because it, it, it universities got more accessible up until
1: very recently in the last
0: few years, and then it went all tits up because of the introduction of, of fees, so it's like gone, it's, it, it, it's not been a steady march of progress by any stretch of the imagination.
1: Yeah. And even in the post fees environment, there's still quite a lot of like poorer people go to university. It's just they completely get fucked for doing so. And that changes the material relation between them and the university education system, which reinforces like the class power of certain elements of academia over certain elements of the student body.
0: The issue with this is that you have several academics who may or may not actually be precarious. There's currently a huge divide in universities uh, between, you know, the the American stereotype is of the tenured professor while the postdoc does all the work for free. Like, that really is now a problem uh, in the UK where uh, t- teach, teaching staff don't make a living wage, whereas, like, there are a handful still of academics who do occupy that very privileged position, academic jobs became devalued as academia became more accessible.
1: Exactly, exactly. I feel I feel like that has kind of coincided with, but I feel like that shift definitely coincided with the latter quarter of the twentieth century and the fact that it featured the um, like the rise of the radical feminist academic movement
0: no not at all um and, and many people have made these links uh, specifically in regards to like academic TERFs yeah it's um,
1: not a causal relationship it's like it's simply a temporal one
0: yeah but of course if you are an academic who maybe is getting cold feet about your job security due to the marketization of your university and you were a turf and wanted to advance your uh, kind of turf stuff. A neat kill two birds with one stone thing would be to try and generate some of that politically fungible capital within this weird revolving door of like the British state and media uh, through the medium of, you know, writing articles for places like the Gron and hyping up the culture war by getting into arguments with your
1: students. Getting uh, into a statues argument would be a brilliant one, for example. Yeah. Yeah, that's the way that like a lot of a lot of like conservative historical professors have managed to reinforce their position in the the face of people asking them to be less racist.
0: Yeah, if you're if you're feeling kind of uh, uncomfortable in your position as an academic and you're looking to diversify your portfolio, going into like the grift, it just makes sense. Um, And so that's why this has happened.
1: (laughs) It's, it's what is also known as the David Starkey Maneuver.
0: Oh, what is that, M? Um,
1: yeah, you know David Starkey, right?
0: No, and I assume some of our listeners won't either.
1: David Starkey is like a, officially a historian of like Tudor-era Britain, Tudor-era England, but his main actual role is to like turn up on BBC historical programmes or alternatively Question Time, which I think he's now banned from for being too racist, and say something absurd about like black British people
0: oh yes i do know who you mean yeah um yeah these academic grifters have been around for a while TERFs are not the first version of them by any stretch of the imagination and because the uh, academy is elitist um and 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 that's kind of the point of the academy like like i said earlier you're always going to get academic reactionaries doing this for various reactionary
1: things exactly i think the other like it's all it all surrounds sorry it all kind of like revolves around this idea of the outrage grift Everybody's very familiar with the outrage grift in general but particularly with the like the academy. It performs itself in a particular way. You get a lot of things like open letters. You get a lot of things like uh, deliberately controversial articles that are intended to kind of like stir up a wee bit of a fuss. There's a lot of kind of like clap chasing and dog whistles.
0: Oh yeah, there's 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 lots of dog whistles, and this is how a lot of the turf academics started early on. And a lot of them had this similar. We, we also discussed this in the in the rolling app um, about having this moment where suddenly you say something wrong and you get cancelled, and then that that triggers like uh, a massive up up, uh, up, speed in the
1: radicalization spiral. Right, yeah. But a good example of, uh, of like the way that they do the open letter thing is that a big open letter that happened this year was like the Harper's Magazine open letter. This was about, so this is an open letter that generally touched on the concept of uh, like freedom of speech and not getting cancelled and all of this kind of stuff. Um, but it kind of it emerged that a lot of signatories of this of this letter that had circulated via via harper 's magazine were well known transphobic members of the academic community. This kicked off sort of like a war of words in the opinion columns like there were there were open letters written about the open letter and, and that kind of thing and this method of doing things means that you kind of like keep this outrage mill turning and if you can keep the outrage mill turning then you can kind of like keep the clout and the real money rolling it. I should stress that the Harper's Magazine open letter textually was relatively banal, it wasn't like talking in and of itself about gender stuff in any way, it was more about like the fact that there were some very very prominent clusters of signatures that made people suddenly twig, oh this is dog whistle politics when you when you look at the general academic sphere and how this stuff relates itself to the academic sphere, whether it's stuff like the open letters or whether it's stuff like occupying a role in faculty or just generally fighting it out over, over like in the war of definitions, mm-hmm. then there's, there's this kind of like battle over correct academic ideas. It is functionally the political correctness battle. For all that reactionaries uh, complain about political correctness gone mad, All they are trying to do is contest the idea of what is politically correct. This is where you get these kind of like weird crossovers with bullshit in Oxbridge universities over whether or not like Cecil Rhodes' statue should be pulled down. You get like free speech on campus arguments, like very similar to like Ben Shapiro type bullshit. And the, the idea is that if you can turn a university into as contentious a battleground as possible, regardless of whether you win specific areas of contention, it is beneficial on a wider level to a reactionary political movement.
0: I was just going to mention, like, Kathleen Stock um, specifically, because there's the example of her seeing a protest that was completely unconnected to her and then deciding to talk about how she was being harassed by the SJWs.
1: Yes, yes, of course. The infamous the infamous flags incident. Very similar to when, like, Northern Ireland... Uh, hardline unionists start complaining about seeing Irish flags. I found that quite funny.
0: Yeah, Kathleen Stock's Orange Order moment was when she... Yeah, she saw some trans flags in her um department, which is I think Sussex's English department, um, connected to Donald Trump, thought they were about her, immediately did the whole being silence free speech thing, which I think was a perfect example of like this kind of like it's the fact that it's the grift zone, but also this actual genuine core of like neoconservatism, Ben Shapiro style logic.
1: I mean Ben Ben Shapiro is this kind of classical example of well not classical but classic example of someone who just is a past master at turning outrage into Griff. He's a deliberately slimy bastard who just does kind of like playground bully, riling up the masses in order to make a quick buck type stuff.
0: Which um, the US is very good at and has very many people who do so, like Alex Jones, et cetera, and Gun Girl, but really is something that is not done well in Britain, aside from people like Tommy Robinson and Tufts.
1: And in the academic context is done in a very, very different way because the language of the academic context and the language of like the populist YouTube talk show guy, totally different worlds. Anyway, so I think when you look at academic stuff and universities, there, there's like a couple of things that you need to realize about how transphobic stuff is in, like relates itself to the universities uh, on a strategic level. So the outrage bullshit like the battle over correct ideas the political correctness stuff it has it has two roles one is is normal kind of like territorialism so so it help if you can have these arguments if you can precipitate these fights then it, assuming that you do win some then it helps you to have campuses that are less kind of like infested by these fucking gender ideology LGBT types, and that is good because obviously uh, if one wants to re- like enforce a reactionary ideology, you can't have the Grendels, the gender people, in your university faculty because they'll start producing ideas, and ideas are bad. Point two, now that we've moved on from ideas being bad, universities having arguments is good, idea's bad, argument's good. So regardless of the actual outcome of the argument and the actual outcome in terms of like people's presence within specific faculties and like the ideological composition of particular areas of academic society, having the argument itself helps the general cause because the argument kind of like behaves like a dynamo. It's an amazing energy and produce generating system. There is an argument to be made that the main benefit in these huge pissing matches isn't to win the specific battles although victories are good and they are desired it's also these second order effects it's kind of like how the space program was very very worthwhile on its own on its own merits but specifically landing someone on the moon didn't make any money on the other hand because of all the huge amounts of money that were ploughed into the space program, you've got loads of technological advances out of it. You know, like, you know, the space pen. That's nice. Nice to have space pens. And they treat it in a similar way. It's, it's good to have these second order effects coming out of these big horrible bullshit arguments. Uh, because if you have these second order effects, then you can just the way the form that these second order effects will take is that it will just be like horrible, like reactionary spin-offs into all sorts of other areas of culture. Whether it's like YouTube livestream grifters, like we've talked about, with like Posey Parker and Tommy Robinson type wankers, or if it's a huge BBC fuss over some bullshit, or if it's like an actual government policy or something, it's the general purpose of the 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 huge academic conceptual argument within the within the transphobic reactionary culture war stuff is to create a fuss and from the fuss you raise you raise legions but
0: the british proverb from the fuss you raise
1: legions hey i just came up with that on the fly i think that's good i think
0: that's a i think that's a damning indictment of the, the moral character of the british generally of, of um, just of
1: the Brits, of
0: the Brits, raise fuss. Do crimes. not only
1: do we want the Brits out of Northern Ireland, we want the Brits out of Brit.
0: I yeah, I think I'm and I'm anti-Brit. I'm anti-Brit action.
1: Fucking hell. Okay. Um, there is one last thing that's notable about this, and that's there's a, there's a kind of deterrent factor which you touched on earlier. If you kick off as an academic turf and you kind of make a name for yourself as as someone who will make loads of transphobic bullshit, it means that you can, you kind of generate for yourself uh, a lot of fallback positions. You generate for yourself a lot of kind of like political security because there's a lot of transphobic people. There's a lot of people who have bought into this culture war bullshit about like freedom of speech being impinged upon by uh, the gays. And if you can, if you can get into that little, you can get into that little kind of like furrow, then that means that if you do something particularly stupid, it'll be a little bit harder to fire you because you suddenly have political clout so in that sense there is a self reinforcing a component to this mechanism it's like having a kind of shit trade union
0: it's a, trade yeah union. trade union for doing right wing crimes
1: yeah it's a dra- it's like a racism it's the racism factory trade union
0: I mean, this is, people, people in general uh, political analysis talk about this, about, about how disparate people will act in specific ways, and it's, it's, it's because it's their class interest. And, and with specifically the academy, like it does come down to this, really. Grim
1: stuff. Oh, boy.
0: So what does this, what does this mean? What does this mean for the, turf, the big turf strat that we have been trying to tease out of just staring at all the places they've managed to worm their way into and figuring out why and
1: how? So my my, my pitch, which you very helpfully uh, read the show notes and realized that it's time to lead into. (laughs) (laughs) So I I have a pitch about this, is that um, I don't think this is an intentional strategy. Like nobody got around a a, a fucking poker table in a smoke-filled room and like nailed this stuff out. That's not how this works. This stuff was generated by a selective process across this entire movement hive mind where they kind of they kind of did the throwing the spaghetti at the wall thing that we discussed earlier. And this has meant that certain methods of acting in relation to institutions have been selected for as being more preferable because they produce more preferable results. And those preferable results are defined by how the movement gets reproduced. They're defined by like how how beneficial they are to the movement. And specifically that that kind of divides into certain categories and I'll kind of go through them one by one one of them is like this external pressure movement you see this um uh, external pressure method and you see this quite a lot with uh the government and with media uh which is like info bombing uh like getting loads of people to like dump information on people just like flooding the airwaves white noise essentially uh lots and lots of trolling um, this is an aggressive tactic that you like apply to people who are who are hostile to your opinion. You 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 would apply it at the same time as info bombing. So that's a way of controlling uh, like information narratives, and then you do kind of like love bombing against like specific uh, specific targets. There's a lot of bombing going on. I realize this is a lot of kind of like masculine psychology going on here. Um, it's I, it's I apologize. It's, what can I say?
0: It's also worth noting that um the troll bombing technique works extremely well on people like, for example, Owen Jones, who constantly runs a file of turfs um, because he's a gay man um, but but this technique was pioneered by Turfs using it against trans people uh, Like trans people talk about how If turfs figure out you exist on the internet They just absolutely flood your social media Occasionally if they, if they Care about you enough they'll try and dox you to your Employer and they will do this on a complete Hair trigger it has nothing to do with who you are Apart from you know being trans But this is something that they do also do To people who aren't trans In a specific way because right, this it's is extremely reason- effective.
1: <laughs> yeah. This is one of the reasons why why Glinner, uh, Graham Lindham was was so was so useful to transphobia, because he was absurdly like clout heavy and he could just demolish random individuals, like just random fuckers on Twitter. He could completely ruin their lives, essentially with a flick at the wrist. So info bombing, love bombing, troll bombing. These these things all kind of like interact. The love bombing is directed at particular individuals. You know, like let's say let's say Liz Trust had a few more conversations with the Heritage Foundation, and the Heritage Foundation put her on to say um, some kind of organization that was similar, but perhaps not the same group as uh, Women's Place. And then like Liz Trust is starting to have some more some more information, and is really getting buttered up by these people, and getting lots and lots of like political affection. That's the way that would get deployed. Uh, this is the closest that, like, this kind of, like, combination of techniques is the closest that the transphobic movement, other than just randomly attacking people in the street, which does occasionally happen, this is the closest they get to direct political violence, and it's usually to compel political, like, political figures, public figures, institutions, and it's in order to compel them in a way that either butters them up or threatens to damage their livelihood. So. From then, we kind of move on to generalized attacks on institutions. So the attacks on the institutions are always directed at the relationship between the thing that they're attacking, whether like uh, so there'll be there'll be a specific subject of the attack. It'll be like a a a think piece or or an individual, say a columnist or an objectionable person, say like a transgender academic. It'll be the relation. So the thing they'll attack is the relationship between them. And the wider institution they are a part of or connected to. So you'll make a, a huge fuss about a think piece and the columnist who wrote it in order to place pressure on, uh, I don't know, say a magazine, a newspaper. Teen Vogue would be a great example. Let's say like Teen Vogue is quite a progressive organization. Turfs probably completely fucking hate it. So you, you apply loads of pressure to a specific columnist in there you manufacture a lot of outrage, you comb through their social media, you get them fired from Teen Vogue, you rinse and repeat until Teen Vogue is a couple of rungs further over to the right. Um, This boils down to like a core concept in like general strategic thinking, which is that the most efficient manner of directing your energy, if you're on, if you're trying to like hurt the opposition, if you're engaging in the offensive, is to direct it at this thing called the center of gravity, um, and this, this derives from like a, a relatively uh, obscure uh, German writer called Clausewitz and he wrote about this concept called the Zweikampf, which is like the two-struggle um, He was a contemporary of Napoleon and he was writing about like the general theoretical conceptions of war and like conceptions of, of, of struggle in general uh, he, was, he was actually a military officer himself and the, the Zweikampf was this idea about like a, like a, a wrestle a wrestling match or like a duel between diametrically opposed opposites, and in order to triumph, in order to gain supremacy, uh, the two halves of this diametrically supposed opposite would have to direct their energies towards like throwing or overpowering the centre of gravity of their opponent. That's what these attacks on institutions are, are like aimed at. If you can degrade the relationship between the subject of the outrage and the organisation in general, then that constitutes a direct attack on the center of gravity of the progressive bits of that organization. So, next up, the random number generator thing we've been talking about. Um, I can't remember which one of us came up with this term first.
0: I can't remember either. It's something that I have been speaking a lot about with people who are much more computer nerdery than me. So, like, either either you came up with it or I was (laughs) regurgitating something that they had said. Mm -hmm. Um, One thing I will note is, by the way, like... um, when we're recording, uh, and and M goes on big, big M time, or or I do like, I, I'm giving like a, <laughs> as a trans person disclaimer, like I do think that this stuff is um true, and also like. A lot of a lot of amazing um, kind of like Intel people have already hinted at stuff like this. We're not we're not claiming credit for entirely like inventing this analysis of turf. So people like uh, Mallory Moore do like loads of invaluable work around this, and I just wanted to shout that out. Like that's why we've gotten that's how we've gotten here.
1: Oh yeah, uh, like the reason why we're able to like rant like complete idiots is because we stand on the shoulders of giants. <laughs> So the random number generator, the thing is, is neither of us are STEM bastards. So we don't actually know anything about how (laughs) random number generators work. But what we see when we've interacted with random number generators is is that uh, basically it's a computer program that chucks loads of shit through a computer processor and you get lots of random numbers. And let's say you were trying to crack a password and you need to just randomly generate lots of words to crack that password via brute force. You're essentially random generating strings of codes. Um, we've discussed earlier, uh, that we think that the way that the, the movement, the transphobic movement, um, selects its strategies and priorities is through a kind of natural selection process. Um, a natural selection is a semi-random process where like random, like somewhat random mutations end up kind of like interacting with the material world around the organism and whatever is beneficial for specific reasons tends to thrive. We think a similar process is going on here. So going back to Clausewitz, and all of my friends are going to make fun of me for this because they know that I'm a fucking Clausewitz widow, uh, Clausewitz, uh, kind of coined this term of military genius, which was meant to be this, like, property, like this creative property that was inherent within, like, decision makers within a struggle. There's no- there's no central vanguard of turfism. There's no central vanguard of transphobia. So the thing that replaces the central vanguard in terms of exerting the- like the strategic- the strategic genius is this random number generation system. It's this like selective process where there's a wide variety of groups, it's like a movement of movements, and they- they kind of spit out these strategies and spit out these tactics and theorems. And this is the decision-making part of the wider entity, is if things, if things don't work, then it kind of doesn't matter. Like, the, like most things will work a tiny bit. Some things will just completely fall on their ass. And the bits that, that really do fall on their ass just won't really get past it. And the things that do manage to stick together, the organizations that do manage to knit together a coherent whole, will tend to proceed on. And if something critical happens to them, they'll either die or mutate. Um, so like, in, when it comes to like armies, like the military genius is the command. when it comes to these kind of movement of movements, the military genius is in the whole. The strategic thought is occurring in, in like a crowd level type way. There are like influential figures within that that might have more, that will definitely have more clout than specific individuals, and like thought leaders within political movements are very, very important, even within decentralized ones. but that's generally how it works. So like within, within decentralized political movements and movements in general, in the age of like mass media and like, uh, like mass, uh, liberal democracy where there's a lot of buy-in within these civic institutions where there's a lot of enfranchisement in every meaning of the term, uh, creative control, um, over like organizational direction isn't under any kind of central sway, it's not, it's not kind of directed from the center, And therefore there's this like constant contest between the organizational development of like these sophisticated centers of action, like vanguards within the mass and just like the mass of crowds engaging in crowd dynamics in and of its own right. So there's kind of like, there's there's this relationship between organization and spontaneity, like a lot of leftist writers have written about this. And I feel like the way the, the transphobic movement behaves as a whole is very emblematic of this because you get these like diehard activists and diehard activist groups, but also you just get kind of get this like generalized blob of people. And within that generalized blob of people, you get kind of like emergent uh, specialists. You get like emergent roles for particular people. Uh, you get like clout chasers who exist within this ecosystem, you know, like people at Posey Park or whatever, you get like specialized organizations. So like Women's Place uh, is a specialized organization. Uh, The Women's Equality Party is a specialized organization. Uh, They have specific uh, like tasks and purposes. And these kind of like boil together in this this, like generalized primordial soup of like organizational life. So like the historic role of this Selective mechanism is to pressure test every single one of these things every tactic and method to test their effectiveness against like targeted institutions So you've got thousands and thousands of of, like small centers of gravity that build up to a whole All of these small focuses build up to a larger focus Which means that like the transphobe system has loads and loads of variety It can take a huge range of actions against its against its opponents, which is trans people Uh, And that means that it can direct all of these like small actions on a crowd level against like a general political center of gravity and that is like the ultimate goal of it is basically intentionally or not reinforcing like patriarchal ideologies of gender and power and patriarchal control over like the body of the worker within the capitalist system, like the body of trans people, physical and collective. And it's, yeah, it, it's, it's deeply, it's deeply cucked. The thing that I really feel I must always warn against is imagining a conspiracy into all of this. A lot of components of this whole I've just described, they'll never meet each other. They'll never talk, they'll never talk to each other. Humans have a great power for like pattern recognition, but they also have a great power for stories. One of the thing I've like one of the things I've discovered in like reading a lot about conspiracy theories and cults is that people love to imagine that there is a plot. A plot makes a wonderful story. There is a certain amount of like collusion that goes on here. There is a certain amount of plotting, but the plotting that does occur is an emergent property of a selective system.
0: This is kind of what a lot of the trash feature people talk about, isn't it with the kind of the cruelty is the point. Like there doesn't need to be any conspiracy when the cruelty is the point.
1: Yeah yeah uh like the, the it's like a simple common denominator of shit political behaviors.
0: Uh, and like I was saying before about kind of trans people being the canaries it's not because we are um <clears throat> uniquely hated f- in of being trans it's because we come up against so many of the issues that reactionaries hate anyway like you know um healthcare uh reproductive um rights uh like employment protections the patriarchy, like it's, 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 we are an incidental threat to um, reactionaries in many ways. They are, we are not at the forefront of their minds most of the time.
1: One thing that it does remind me of is the way that the post Blair ec- uh, economic and political environment in Britain turned so heavily against uh, people with disabilities. <laughs>
0: Yes. Yes. Very much so. Um, and and there has been a lot of theory on kind of the social model of disability, and also kind of the medicalization of the bodies of trans people in a way that intersects not in not not you know at, to say that trans people are disabled, but in the sense of societal reactions towards the transgender body and the disabled body, etc.
1: Yeah. In, indeed. Like I think like the way that the way that I would describe this whole thing is that. Um, Turf strategy does not exist, but turf strategic action does
0: yeah we've we've made jokes about this episode about like uncovering the turf strategy, but there isn't the turf strategy
1: no there's a thousand there's a thousand strategies like it's death by a thousand cuts is visited on every like trans person, but the thousand cuts come from a thousand knives
0: yes, however. As you as as you're making the comparison to Klausovitz, like it is similar enough that you can make predictions that someone will do a thing, even if you're not making the prediction that the general will do a thing.
1: Yeah, so so if you if you're making predictions that someone will do a thing, then you can base that on their particular way of behaving within the dynamic. But you can't you can't project that upwards. If you're gonna be making predictions about the system as a whole, you have to view it in a very kind of like grand scale way. Yep. And that means that there's like overlap an influence from other from other movements in society. I, I mentioned there is an external pressure method of like infobombing and so on. And then there's like attacks on institutions in a culture war type way. There's also there is also an internal method. There is like the climbing the ladder. There is the the unintentional systemic entryism that occurs within the academic institutions. And I feel like this this links back to one of the primary sins of like liberal right-wing feminism um kind of like, uh, i guess girl boss stuff
0: yeah very much girl boss stuff which is is kind of like part of the point of what we were trying to say in the, in, in the last episode oh not the not the last episode before the penis episodes
1: which episode was that i don't remember 5
0: was it uh uh girl Baz, girl boss girl boss and the turf grifters
1: yes yes of course um so we we've received like uh, several questions about this actually as uh, so what what on earth is girl baz um, I feel we should probably issue an, a, a clarification. The, f- the phrase Baz is something we've like cribbed from Trash Future, which is like a popular leftist British polo- British podcast, and Baz refers to like an archetype of British culture, which is like, uh, uh, I guess like a lower middle class, uh, small business owner type guy who like drives, a, drives like a white van, is like quite right wing is depicted in the media as being working class salt of the earth, but is actually more just like a bit of a wanker who has like a modicum of privilege, but not a huge amount. What else, what else constitutes Baz?
0: Baz is kind of like one of the tenets of Baz, as as I seem to understand it, is that Um, The Baz specifically is who people Are talking about when they conjure the Spectre of the white working class Who basically people project reactionaryism onto This uh, imagined white Working class when obviously White working class people are not inherently fucking Reactionary however who is Inherently fucking reactionary is the Baz Who apes at being working class Whilst being a builder who Owns his own building company and actually has two cars And a massive house
1: Right, 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 it's, it's kind of like the the, the the Tommy Robinson core squad Yeah uh, Tommy <laughs> Robinson, the brilliant example of this because he famously is actually, um, well not famously but if, if you know stuff about Tommy Robinson via, say, anti-fascist work it, 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 it quick, the information quickly comes to you that he was actually a, a fairly well-off small business owner for quite a while um, I don't know what the state of affairs there is now maybe he's lost it all, who knows he gets sued quite a lot, so it could be so yeah so that that's uh that's why we came up with this portmanteau between girl bars and girl boss but there's also this concept of girl boss which I feel we should tackle because in some ways it's a bit of a loaded term and I feel like we should explain the way in which we use it. So the girl boss is uh this concept that emerged out of uh like American liberal feminism and it's sort of it sort of champions the concept of like female power within the corporate workplace
0: it's like the Eric Andre sketch where he asks i think it 's the spice girls whether they thought that Margaret Thatcher util- utilized girl power to do war crimes
1: it, except like you know, to be fair to, to be fair, not quite as severe <laughs> um, g- Girl boss stuff is more like uh, i think like the general concept is that the, given that like uh, for a good component of White cis women within the West, a good chunk of the glass ceiling has been smashed, and it's not universal, but a good chunk of it has. Um, that means that there is like increasing um, access to like the corporate levels of management, and this means that there is a a sort of like cultural and, and societal power that doesn't come via capital P political means. It comes via like corporate means. It comes like via the business world that is now available to working women and that that means there's certain kind of like levers of power that those people could pull on and this is therefore like a direct a direct like benefit to feminism in an extremely important way and it's inherently progressive.
0: It's um yeah the, it's it's like the 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 the, C, the um one of the board members of Facebook wrote Cheryl Sanderberg. Wrote a book which was like a classic girl. When people criticise this liberal feminist tendency, this corporatist tendency, they 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 pointed the book which is called Lean In. It's about Lean In feminism, which is like you can have you can have kids and a career, and you should implicitly understood to be like as long as your career pays for you to delegate all of the traditional kind of like feminine responsibilities onto a badly paid like immigrant worker in your home or something.
1: Yeah, I feel so. Essentially, the 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 comparison we were trying to set up between girl boss and girl Baz was that basically, um, if girl Baz is kind of like the the more explicitly like far right version of this, girl boss is kind of like the like the liberal institutional version of this stuff. It's it's like about having a specific rung on the ladder for you. Um, it's in a way sort of individualized. It's about individual success. It's about like prosperity. It's about influence over economic levers in a direct way and not in a collective way. And in that way, this internal this internal method of gaining political power for transphobia intersects quite well with Girlboss stuff.
0: That's why the majority of the people that we've mentioned in this episode of the two tendencies fall into like the girl boss turf tendency rather than the girl boss tendency with with some exceptions
1: uh, like academics and senior politicians aren't gonna hang out at speaker's corner it's just not the done thing however it is the done thing to hang out at like the cambridge debating society and as we all know ideas are made at the cambridge debating society <laughs>
0: So this episode has been a broad view on um, turf, kind of lay of the land, if not directed strategy, and hopefully has given people a lot of of stuff to think on, on like where they can kind of see more of this stuff pop up and what would be a good way to counter it. And uh, next episode, we're hoping to look into kind of um, counter counter power and counter institutions, i.e., trans activism um an analysis of kind of trans activism in the past in the present um maybe what could be better maybe what what's doing great and maybe where it could be in the future to kind of counteract this sort of uh, uh, you know tough tough tide because it's quite bad in the uk uh, as as you will know from uh listening to this episode even if you didn't already And on that note, I have kind of avoided making this episode even though it is sort of the entire reason I wanted to start this podcast. Mostly because I don't want to kind of do anyone an injustice. Um, And so if you have any kind of like knowledge of any trans groups or, or kind of even any people who have like helped you in a, in a specifically kind of like radical way whether that's um, help with hormones or health advocacy done personally or a group doing so mutual aid funds that kind of thing please let us know and uh, link us because if we're going to be looking at kind of like trans activism uh, we don't want to be missing out anyone who has contributed Um, to, like, the fight against all this bollocks. Uh, So please send us emails, message us on Twitter, Uh, however, we want to hear about everyone that you think is is great.
1: Yeah, we're going to be, like, if we're going to be doing, like, a whole episode about, like, discussing how, um, like, the trans movement should, should, like, situate itself in relation to this institutional barrage of shit, then... More information is better. So yeah, just if you feel you've got something relevant, even if it's relatively small, just just pop it in. We're you know we're a small we're small we're a small time outfit, but every little bit helps. With that, I think we're we're probably going to conclude this episode. We've been we've been going for for quite a long time. There's a lot of dense subject matter that's been covered. Um, there's a few things, a, th- a few threads. Uh, that I think both you and I would like to pull on, that we're probably going to cover in other episodes. Um, two that uh, like I want to have a look at, so like obviously one of them is, is this discussion of like counterpower and counter-institutions, but two that I kind of want to look at would be um, like the way that social media propaganda campaigns interact with all of this stuff. Uh, and i i have an idea for an for a comparative example that we'll use we'll use in that instance but uh, i guess i'll i'll keep that idea for when we do that episode so yeah we're going we're going to have a look at like online social media campaigns because that's that's a whole can of worms and the other one would be the heritage foundation um you know they're basically like fucking skynet they're huge and like evil and really fucked up and powerful and i think a, a nice deep dive into the heritage foundation and the way that they try to influence politics would be very informative, both as a comparative example and as a direct example, because they are now trying to fuck with us. So the music for this episode is by like a personal acquaintance of ours, uh, a comrade from the struggle uh, who is known by the who's known by Alaska. Uh, we're always glad to like have like music submissions from our listeners and our, our like our friends and comrades. So as always, if you've got something, send it in. Uh, we'll be cycling the various different musics, the, the the various different musics, the various different like pieces of music that we have um, we've had submitted to us so far in just depending on like how we feel like it. Basically, uh, so far they've all been like complete bangers, so we're quite happy, ha- quite happy with the selection you've given us.
0: Yeah, M was playing back uh, some of a previous episode um, for a technical point, and some of the music from a previous episode came in, came on, and I just started like bopping along because uh, it's all it's
1: all excellent music. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes, I am a big, a big nerd. Cancel big, me.
1: A big a big nerd, bopping onto podcast theme tunes. Uh, right, so the next episode will probably be about uh counterpower, counter power, counter-institutions and like uh, the clash of civilizations, all of that bullshit. Um, no idea when we'll be able to produce that one, but we'll, we'll try and get it done reasonably soon.
0: As ever, thank you very much for listening, and um, I see some people mentioning us in, like, social media in places I wouldn't expect it, which is, like, very cool, um, so that's always nice to see.
1: Indeed, indeed. If you guys have any, like, suggestions about stuff that we should do, like, that's another another thing that you can you can pop over to us. We have, like, a long list of stuff that we're vaguely planning to do in the future but unfortunately whenever we do an episode we kind of generate three more ideas because there's just a never-ending pit of bullshit for us to examine.
0: Yeah so if you want to make our, our kind of our lives even harder feel free to send us as many suggestions as you want. I mean it, it wouldn't really we would actually very much appreciate that.
1: Indeed. Keeps us in those podcasting big bucks that we're definitely receiving.
0: Oh, speaking of podcaster big bucks um, I hope people uh, Are enjoying the slightly less shit audio I know that the last few episodes The penis episodes My laptop I was using the native speaker of And it's slowly dying So I got cracklier and cracklier And hopefully I sound less shit now
1: (sighs) Beautiful, beautiful We've got a professional podcasting setup now Anyway, uh, that's more than enough from us Uh, We'll see you next time
0: Bye. Bye Thank you.
1: I'm abusing my role as the editor, just to kind of leave a little easter egg here for anyone who's listened past the the outro music. I thought I'd put in a little quote from Klausowicz, because he's one of my favourite theory authors, and uh, because um, in, when I was flicking through the book uh, after recording the episode I found a quote that I thought might be informative and hopefully a little bit uplifting for some of the people who are on the receiving end of the kinds of things that we talk about. I've, I've abridged it a little bit. It's from um, the third chapter of the first book of his main work, which is called Vom Krieg. The struggle is the realm of physical exertion and suffering. These will destroy us unless we can make ourselves indifferent to them. And for this, birth or training must provide us with a certain strength of body and soul. If we do possess these qualities, then even if we have nothing but common sense to guide them, we should be well equipped for struggle. If the mind is to emerge unscathed from this relentless struggle, with the unforeseen, two qualities are indispensable. First, an intellect that, even in the darkest hour, retains some glimmerings of the inner light which leads to truth. And second, the courage to follow this faint life, wherever it may lead. The first of these qualities is described by the French term, coup d'oeil. The second is determination. Determination, in a single instance, is an expression of courage. If it becomes characteristic, a mental habit. But here we are referring not to physical courage, but to the courage to accept responsibility, courage in the face of a moral danger. This has often been called courage d'esprit, for it is created by the intellect. That, however, does not make it an act of the intellect, it is an act of temperament. Intelligence alone is not courage, we often see that the most intelligent people are irresolute. Since in the rush of events a man is governed by feelings rather than by thought, the intellect needs to arouse the quality of courage, which then supports and sustains it in action. Looked at in this way, the role of determination is to limit the agonies of doubt and the perils of hesitation when the motives for action are inadequate.